Hello, this is Pastor Kevin Thompson from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. And I am blessed and honored to be able to lead you in the study of God's Word today. Today, as is our typical custom for Bible study from St. Paul's De Pere, we will be looking at the lectionary readings assigned for next week. So that means today we'll be looking at the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 6th. But before we get more into our study and actually dig into God's Word together, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You've given us Your Word. And especially today as we consider Your Word, as we read and learn and inwardly digest Your Word given for us we look at the fact that, Lord, there, there are times in which we do need to truly take account of where we've fallen short, but also where we can, in love and in gentleness, seek to share your word in truth with our neighbor. And so, Lord, as we get into this, may your Holy Spirit bless our time in your word, and may your Holy Spirit bless us so that we be strengthened in faith towards you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I said, uh, I am blessed to have the opportunity to go through God's Word with you. And as if you've been listening, you know that we are pre-recording these sessions. So I'm sitting here in my office by myself, um, but excited to, to grow in God's Word with you as we both all consider wherever we're at and whatever time of day or week you're listening to this. Um, but you can join KFUO 850 AM or online, or they also have their own podcasts. So... Let's get into God's Word. The first reading for Sunday, Sunday, September 6th is Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 7 through 9. And first, just want to read God's Word. So Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 7 through 9. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Here ends the Old Testament reading for next week. So, we look at this a couple of notes uh, because we only have just, what, three short verses um, of God's Word for us. We need a little bit of context. So first of all, we're in Ezekiel. So it's the prophet, um, God's prophet, Ezekiel. And right from the beginning of this reading, we hear it, God addresses him, Ezekiel. It says, you son of man. And just a reminder, if you uh, have forgotten or if you never knew, but this is the address to Ezekiel. So God is directly in this section, really directly talking to Ezekiel first and foremost. Of course, as we'll get to, it's really speaking to us and to others through Ezekiel. But this is an interesting term um, used because in the book of Ezekiel, God never actually refers to him by his name, Ezekiel. He uses this term, son of man. Actually, um, looking at commentaries, it says it's used 93 times is this title used, son of man, and yet not addressing him by his name, Ezekiel. Interesting. I think you can look at it a couple different ways, but um, generally it's perceived as the fact that this, this title given to Ezekiel, just it really reminds of the fact that Ezekiel is human. He's a creature in contrast to the creator. And by that very distinction of creature, creator, you have the differentiation between one is less than and one is dependent on the creator. You could use the, I know some commentaries and, and notes use the word weakness. It shows the prophet's weakness. Um, and that obviously factors in. But also we don't want to read into that 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 understanding of the term too much and I think that Ezekiel is just weak, right? It's just the fact of this distinction between Ezekiel is the messenger of God, the one who relies and depends on God, and God is using using Ezekiel to share his word with others. And that is especially what we get at here in this portion of God's word. He says, you son of man, I've made a watchman for the house of Israel. One thing that's interesting too is Ezekiel chapter 33, as we're reading here in these words and this, this essential message is very similar to Ezekiel chapter 3. And I'm just going to mention that now and we'll come back to a little bit of the difference later on. But just note that, yes, especially if you have or now maybe you should go back and read the entire book of Ezekiel, um, you'll notice very, very strong similarities between chapter 33 and 3. But 
we look at this part and then God says to Ezekiel, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Again, house of Israel being refer, reference to God's people. And whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning. So here we got to look at this term watchman. Okay. As always, we're going to see some application, right? God's word always speaks to us in our lives. It always speaks to us no matter what or where we're at. Um, but let's look at the original context. This watchman term, excuse me, is a term um, really that has strong military connotations, right? It's a military metaphor, really, that the watchman mil- in military terms is someone who would stand out um, a on the outskirts of the the town, the area, and watch for danger. Quite literally, that watchman's actually watching to make sure that nothing or no one is actually going to come into the city and destroy the people and literally kill them. Right? This is what we're talking about. The danger isn't just like, oh, like they might get a little bit sick, but like we're talking about death could be an impending danger. So the, the watchman is supposed to alert them. Hey, danger's coming, right? It's just essentially like an alarm system. A guy standing out there watching for danger, tell the people. That's his job. And that's a key thing that we need to look at today. The key role of the watchman is to warn. W-A-R-N, warn. Okay. And that's where we have to look at it. And that'll be very key, especially when we get to application of this portion of scripture. Um, because his role isn't necessarily to um, affect change and make everyone a certain way, make everything perfect, prevent every single thing from ever happening, make sure that their life is completely danger, harm, anything free, but to warn is his job. If we look at that military metaphor, the reality is, is the watchman could very well do his job, warn the people of the coming danger, but maybe depending on the force that's coming, He's not, they're not strong enough to actually um, face the danger. And in that sense, maybe there's still come, trouble still comes, but he did his role, his duty, he warned. Okay. So we look at this and we see that that's the watchman's role. And what we're going to get at here as we get in a little bit more and, and see the application is that this um, role of a watchman is something that here is given to Ezekiel. He has been made by God a watchman for the people of the house of Israel, God's people. Um, this term is also applied to other prophets. You can look at Isaiah 21, Hosea 9, Habakkuk 2. So this is applied to other prophets as well, which is fair understandable, right? Prophets are messengers of God. And in some ways that by very definition, messenger of God is bringing the word of God, warning the people, sharing with the people what God is saying, what is to come. Um, but then, as we'll get at in the New Te- we'll see in the New Testament, it, this this term, this role of watchman, can be applied to all Christians. But I don't want to jump off ahead too far just yet. So we look at this, and um, Ezekiel is made the the watchman for the people, and it says in ver- in the second half of verse seven there, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And again, this is God's word. God's the one speaking. So whenever you hear a word from God's mouth, then you should give them warning from me, from God. And so just, I, I highlight this and it may be for some, you're like, okay, of course, but we must not overlook some of these simple details, but are so power, powerful and pivotal that it's God's word. Ezekiel's not just making stuff up. He's not just doing his, whatever he wants, which is um, when we talk about you know, New Testament Christians, our lives being watchmen for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not just making stuff up. It's not just us making laws, us doing what we want, us making people do whatever we want or think is best for them, but it's sharing God's word, warning them of what God's word says. And as we look here in Ezekiel, you know, the context is there's, there's coming judgment, there's coming wickedness. And so he is supposed to warn the wicked to turn from his way. So if Ezekiel does this, then we look at the very end of that um, section, verse nine, it says, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, he does not turn his way. That person shall die in his iniquity, but you, Ezekiel, son of man, you will have delivered your soul. And soul here is, is really synonymous with life. Especially in the Hebrew language, uh, we see those terms very much used synonymously as soul is considered life. So he says that if you do your job, if you do, do your duty of warning, sharing the word of God, you've delivered your life. You've done what you can. If 
you don't, which backs up to verse 8, then if you don't warn the people, then their blood is on or required of Ezekiel. Right? So here's the crux of this whole passage. Right? If Ezekiel doesn't, um, doesn't do his role, if he doesn't warn, then he's, he's punished. Right? And it, do, it doesn't mean that you know, um, he can't change what people do, but he could warn them. Right? So if Ezekiel shares the word of God and God says, you know, don't act in this wicked way, and you fill in the blank with any wickedness that God's word warns about, right? And, God, and Ezekiel says, this is what God says. This is the warning to those who walk in wickedness. May not change the way they act, but he's done what he can, right? And I think we can see that in our own lives, right? You can tell someone, hey, that's not the way we should act. That's not the way God's word uh, that's, not, that's not what God's word condones. That's not how Christians should live. That's not according to the word of God. And they can do whatever they want. <laughs> I mean, I have, I have young children, and sometimes you do everything you can and try to tell them, and they still have a mind of their own, right? Not to speak ill of my children. That's just all children. That's all people that sometimes we can hear, and we might even know what we should do. But we do otherwise. We do contrary. And so here we just look at what's Ezekiel's role? To warn, to share them. And if he's done his role, then he's safe and he's in good place. Okay, so we look at this and just kind of a couple summary comments here uh, before we get to the next next um, reading for next week. Again, we cannot control what other people do, right? We can only control ourselves. You could debate me about that. I wish we were in person. I wish we could have this Bible class together and, and whoever of you are listening right now, we could discuss this and debate this. But at the end of the day, no one can control, you can only control yourself, right? Um, and that's really the way it's designed to be. I mean, we're not supposed to go out and manipulate others and control them. Um, but I do think we, we see in this passage, and as the lectionary, lectionary was designed, we'll see connections to the other readings, but we see here that there is a duty, a responsibility to our neighbor, right? Now, because at the end of the day, in my opinion, we're all Christians are essentially, in a way, watchmen for other Christians, for fellow Christians, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because in a way, you know, we should look out for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should warn them and share God's word with them of wickedness that's coming their way or of a thing that maybe they're, maybe they're at risk for, for falling into temptation or at risk for not realizing what they're doing is an error. Who knows, right? But we have been called by God to care for our neighbor, to love our neighbor. And that neighbor, you know, could apply to anyone and everybody that we come in contact, that we know that exists in this world, the community around us. But especially, I think it really applies to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, the challenge, again, is there's no perfect way for me to prescribe how to do this, right? Like, how should I share this word with God, word of God with my neighbor, with my friend, my own family member who's doing this stuff? How, how do I tell them that that's not what God says or that's contrary to God's word? How do I confront them with that? I don't know, right? I can't fill in the blanks. Um, that's where you pray, pray, pray. <laughs> pray before you go into that. Pray before you share God's word that you do that. You're, everything you're doing is out of gentleness and love and care for that person. Um, and the other side of it, again, too, is this is not a deputization of us to be the, for lack of better terms, moral police. Right? We're not just saying that, well, I get to say, tell everyone and everyone what to do. I mean, we all have our own sins too, and as you know, get the log out of your own eye first. Um, but we should seek to, when at all possible, care for our neighbor and, and warn them of wickedness, especially if they're um, at risk for falling into um, temptation or error or being overtaken by wickedness. Um, so another connection that we're going to see later um, here is the seriousness of sin and unfaithfulness. That'll come in more in some of our other readings, but just note that as well. But again, I, I mentioned earlier that I would come back later to the, the similarity, similarities between Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33. So as I said, you have very similar passages, and in some ways the um, message could be considered almost the same of Ezekiel being a watchman for the house of Israel. But really you do actually see, um, if nothing else, two very different applications. Um, in chapter 3, as God is telling him of his role, there's more emphasis on Ezekiel and his role. In chapter 33, the emphasis is on a, the public nature of this word from God. And so the people know that this God-given role to Ezekiel um, it 
that the, or so that the people know this role is given by God um, to Ezekiel, and that the people also know that they have this watchman watching out for them. Um, so I think that's where we also need to think about it in our lives too, is that like we need to remember like God has, has placed our brothers and sisters in Christ, and I think you could arguably say pastors too um, or others, um, but in our life to be watchmen for us, and that's a good thing. Again, that's not just people looking at, standing over us, watching to make sure they can get us, right? Catch us in the act or whatever. It's because he loves us, setting people in our midst and among us to care for us. Because the reality is, is those who pursue only wickedness is a terrible consequence and only have more, build, only, only build more separation between them and God. And if only all you pursue is wickedness, then that's a terrible, terrible end there as well. So, I think that covers all we can really look at um, from here. Oh, one other, one other thing I wanted, to, I did want to uh, take note, I wanted to mention is, as a watchman, I mean, his role actually does include law and gospel, right? So Ezekiel, he, God says, you son of man, you're the watchman for the house of Israel. That means he's, you know, the watchman, which does include a lot of law, especially in this context, there's impending wickedness. So, right, warn them. There's, there's a lot of law in this section, right? We do not want to defy context. But also, I mean, there is, I think, fair to say gospel um, implicit in this role as well. That he, Ezekiel, as a prophet of God, as the messenger of God's word, his gospel to the people as well. Um, so, just here lies another another point that we just, we don't want to make being watchmen um, just a too law based of a role, but also the law and gospel, because that's the beauty of God's word, His teaching, um, and doctrines that it is law and gospel. Can't take one or the other. So that is uh, where I will conclude it, at least for Ezekiel thirty-three. I'm sure we could talk and discuss more, but I'd like to move on to our epistle lesson for Sunday, September sixth. And quite frankly, as I was talking with some others here in our, our church offices, man, these readings for Sunday the 6th are just packed full of so many different things we could talk about. Of course, God's Word always is, but there is so much packed into these three passages that hopefully we'll have time to at least scratch the surface on all of them, if not get in depth. Um, Romans 13, for those of you who are familiar, like you're like, yes, this is the government section. If you're unfamiliar, well, we're going to get into it. It's talking a lot about government which how applicable and timely is this? Again, God's word is amazing. His spirit is amazing that it truly speaks to us in all times. Um, but I think in some ways now more than ever, how timely is this passage to be read for our, our, our worship and our study. So Romans chapter 13, verse one, verses 1 through 10. God's word says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Here ends our epistle reading for Sunday, September 6th. How timely, right? So let's look at this. And my best thought is just kind of do a walkthrough of these verses, similar as we did the other, but starts off right away. Uh, well, before I um, get into that, first of all, the context, if you look immediately in the chapter preceding, 
Uh, Romans chapter 12, there's this discourse on the marks of a true Christian. Um, and I know at least here at St. Paul's in De Pere, there, um, our preacher this week will be going and, and preaching on that message, which um, is, right, if we're honest with ourselves, a difficult one to, to really reflect on. Do we always truly show the true marks of a Christian um, in the way that we're called to do? Because it's not easy. Uh, but he'll get into that. So anyways, I invite you to tune into worship in the sermons. But anyway, so the context for this is Romans 12. You got the marks of a true Christian and talking about things like letting love be genuine, love, loving one another with brotherly affection and um, loving even those, blessing those who persecute you, right? All these difficult, these challenging things. And then Romans chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Man, you know, it, that is a tough thing for so many people today's world i think to to say yeah sure okay fine right and we'll get into that but let's really look into this 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 situation here it says let every person be subject to the governing authorities right it doesn't say some people it doesn't say christians it doesn't say non-christians it just says everyone everyone who lives in this world and on this earth should be subject to governing authorities and the next word there is subject. So that does mean following, um, showing the respect and honor, subjecting yourself, putting yourself under to, under the rule of the governing authorities. And that last part there I want to pull out is governing authorities. Uh, which, when you think about it, you know, especially in our country, right, you have the thoughts that, you know, there's a certain way to do government. Um, and I am not prescribing anything, by the way. Um, so let's just be careful. I'm not trying to say anything. I'm just looking at what God's Word says. People say, oh, you know, democracy is the way to go. But, I mean, at the end of the day, God does not explicitly state in Scripture, you must do government in this way or that way. But what he does say is he has instituted government. So look at these governing authorities. Um, it's, it goes on in these Scripture, in these verses, to say, well, these governing authorities, they are, as it says right there in the second half of verse 1, from God. There's no authority except from God. So the fact that governing authorities have authority is because it's from God. Okay? Let's just let that sit for a second. And it's not only having authority from God, but governing authorities have been instituted by God. And key words there we want to think about is that governing authorities have been instituted by God. That God instituted that there be governments in this land, in the land of his people. The fact that God instituted government because he knows that government is to promote order and, and peace and so that the that people can live and promote life. Okay? And as we'll get to a little bit later on, verse four, the government bears the sword, which is ability to punish. Now if we just stop there and we just didn't talk about anything else, right? Those would be challenging. We'd really, really probably wrestle with a lot of questions and, and have to think about a lot of things. But those points are true. That's this, These are from Scripture, from God's Word. Now, of course, as we'll get into, and, and we need to remind ourselves is, right, we are fallen people. We live in a fallen world. So, yes, there's corruption, there's sin, all pervading. Um, but the reality is, as much as we do or don't want to admit is, God has instituted that there be government. And that government is has authority from God. And that, especially, I really find this interesting. Um, where did it go? Verse, oh yeah, there it is. Verse 4. For he is the ones in, in, in governing authority. Verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. Again, servants for your good. Right? Now, got to be careful about this next comment, but... This word servant is very similar to the word even used for pastors, right? And I'm not saying that they have spiritual authority because those are different. Um, you got to use context and everything. But my point there is, since reading the commentaries, what they made is that these are servants from God. And so serving in government and government roles is, it's a good thing. It's your, you can serve God by serving through government. Um, so I get distracted though. Let's, let's, let's keep, uh, I'll keep myself on track. Um, so we look at this and we go back in these, these passages. So God's institute that there's government. It's a good thing. Government is supposed to be here, has power, has authority, bears a sword. Verse two, challenging one as well. Whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. 
Okay, so if you stopped there, you're like, whoa, right? If I resist the authority, I'm resisting God? Ooh, that's challenging. But it's, it goes on to say, and those who resist will incur judgment. Okay, so if I resist the government, does that mean I'm going to... No. What we really got to look at here is, yes, is government something instituted by God? Yeah, God wants government to be in the land to keep peace and, and safety for his people. But again, we live in a fallen, sinful world. So the reality is... At times, because government is made up of fallen people who've, who've worked. And, it, and again, we're not trying to speak ill of people. People do their best um, to do what we can, but we are in a fallen world. So at times, maybe we should resist the government, though. And I, I do believe that, that we should, at times, as Christians, resist the government. And those times would be when go- the government contradicts God's word. But what this verse is, is very telling about is that, as it says, those who resist will incur judgment. And in some way, we can look at that and see, okay, it is a good and Christian thing to do to resist government if it's because it's for Christ's sake and in accordance with God's word. But there could still be consequences, right? I'll never forget a seminary professor. We talked about this very this very subject matter in class. And we ta- it was a couple, this was now probably, what, five, six years ago in that, whatever class it was in, um, but we talked about this very concept that, you know, okay, you want to resist the government, you want to make certain types of protests or certain things or refuse different things that the government is asking you to do or others want you to do. Okay, if it's in the sake, for the sake of Christ in accordance with God's word, yeah, sure. But doesn't mean there won't be consequences. Doesn't mean you couldn't be fined by the government, couldn't even be jailed, right? I mean, look at the disciples. They resisted. Jesus resisted and there's death. Right? So, when we look at this passage, we need to be careful, right? Like, government is instituted by God. Government is a good thing for, create, for our land, our, our people, for us to have. Um, but as we know, all, we're all fallen. And so even the government that exists in our, our land and all lands anywhere on this earth, this fallen earth, it can be corrupt. And at times, yes, we do need to resist. But it's sometimes not without consequence. So let's look back at this government that God says. He goes on, verse 3, he says, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Right? The way God designed government, the way God instituted government to be, is so that rulers should essentially, as I've said, promote good, peaceful life, good conduct, and should be a terror to bad. And that's interesting there. Um, and here I think you could again get on some side tangents but of application uh, or what that looks like in our world, but to be a terror to bad conduct. The whole point of government is to promote the good, but rid of the bad. And we'll get to some more of this later. Um, God gives authority to the government. Um, but again, he doesn't say how that authority is supposed to use. Um, so look at verse 7 then. I'm tying in some of those other comments. Verse 7 gets about, you know, pay to all what's owed, taxes to taxes, revenue to revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. This is another interesting one. I, I find that we could have quite a debate. I wish we were in person to do that again. Um, but how should we respect government? And if you consider the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, honor your father and mother, that isn't just talking about mom and dad. Remember, that's talking about your mother and your father. It's talking about your teachers. It's talking about government leaders. Let's talk about your 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 mother, your father in different roles, your authority figures. And so that includes government leaders. We should honor them. And I think the challenge to, to what is what does that look like? How do we you know, to whom is respect owed? Or what does it look like look like to respect owed to or to respect um government leaders or the like? Um you know, is there a proper Christian way to disrespect government? Or maybe I shouldn't even say it that way. Maybe is disobeying government for Christ's sake, is that still considered being respectful? Right? Like, so if you disagree, if you ultimately disobey government, is that actually still being respectful? Can you, because there's the, con, the, the phrase, I respectfully disagree, right? So even if you are disobeying government or going against government, for the sake of God's word, of course. Are you still being respectful? 
right? Can you be respectful about the way in which you do disobey or um, dare I even say protest against the government in different ways? Are there respectful ways of doing that? Um, and I know as I say these questions, or at least I'm assuming as I say some of these questions, that some are challenging for us to consider, um, especially in our climate today. Again, we are the church. We are supposed to um, read God's word and study his word and, and be of his word, but we go out in this world every day. God also created, created us to live in this world. We have many different vocations, and just the reality is, is we live in this world in which there's a lot of upheaval right now. There's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of different opinions. Um, I, you know, I have social media accounts. Well, just one. I only do Facebook. Uh, I don't know how to do the others. But I see plenty of things on Facebook of different, different opinions and different approaches and all those kinds of things, especially now. And what a timely passage to talk about government when we have an election year, right? And maybe things are more heated in some ways now more than ever. Um, I just think what as we're given God's word today, what we need to consider is what has God given us? What has God instituted? How should we as Christians seek to live um, in this world with the government, as part of the government. And that's even a whole other topic, how to be to be part of it, right? Um, as I'm sharing, you know, thoughts and comments on God's Word and, and studying it today, I don't know, even know entirely who's listening. Some of you are own members or non-members. I mean, maybe you work in government, have a government position, right? Law enforcement or... Um, different political leaders, who knows, right? All different kinds of topics or even um, be a part of the armed services, right? And there's nothing wrong with doing those things. There's a Christ-like way to serve in those roles. Those are your vocations. We need to remember as everything. I just had this conversation related to a whole separate topic, but with someone else just yesterday. Who are we? We're children of God. We're loved creatures, right? Valuable people. But God's also given us many vocations, many places to serve Him in this world. And some people, that means, yeah, serving in governmental roles and um, positions. For some, it's not. Maybe it's in medical field or in teaching or all different kinds of places or in the home. Who knows? Um, but serving in government roles is just as as valuable um, to serve God as in serving other roles um, as well. So, those are just some thoughts and some comments on it. But I, I, one last thing before we get uh, we move into Matthew, and I do want to have a little more time for Matthew because oh, there's a lot in that, that reading as well. Romans chapter 13, the lect- as assigned by the lectionary, which again it was created by, by humans, so it's not just, it's not, we, we can start and stop when we're, where we want in our readings. But I do, I think it's worth considering that those who put the lectionary together have us reading 13 verse 1, through verse 10. Obviously, in most Bibles, um, there there's a segment, there's a separation between verse 7 and 8. It's generally suggesting there's a kind of a, a theme switch. But I think there's, there's value in going all the way to verse 10. Because look at verse uh, 9 for a moment. Verse 9 says, here's the commandments, right? It goes into them. They're all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting Jesus, of course. But isn't this really the whole summary of what we're talking about in government and the role of it? That it's to love your neighbor, to protect your neighbor, to promote the life, the peaceable, healthy, safe, uh, prosperous life for others, right? And there, I think, is really the key, that the, the link we're seeing in a lot of the, the tying link between these three lectionary readings for this week. But, right, at the end of the day, government should be hopefully to promote those the the good life the the safe the the peace for our neighbor for us and and we should seek to um to serve in that gov- in those governmental roles to um speak up in in terms of the government and what we have in our communities so that um we can show love to our neighbor um, and you've got that right before there. It talks about these commandments, right? I mean, um, the fact that God's word says you shall not murder and commit adultery and steal and covet. And we also have those laws in our, our government. And, of course, you can get debates, right, because we know that it's, it's legal to do certain things like um, have an abortion, which is a terribly sad thing. Um, but it's also, let's look at some of the other, other things. As reality is we have some laws that say you shouldn't murder. And for that, there are consequences, Um 
obviously we don't want terrible things like abortion happening as well, but could we only imagine the terror that would exist in our, our society if even the government said it's okay to murder? I mean, I can't even think about it, right? Um, or it's okay to steal, just take whatever you want. So you even look at the, some of those that are, are part of the government laws and um, you see that there is is trying to promote the um, the protection of our neighbor as well. So that's just those are just kind of my thoughts looking at it. Um, did, didn't read that in a commentary. Um, but anyways, so Romans chapter 13, and I'm sure there's much room for more debate, and I'm sure we could go on. Um, but we are going to move on now to the gospel reading that is assigned for Sunday, September 6th. We are going to be reading Matthew chapter 18. And as I said, wow, there's a lot packed into this gospel reading for that Sunday. Um, I'm also blessed to be able to preach that weekend. And I'm torn, right? What, what, which text to, which scripture reading to pick to uh, preach upon of the three in which we're given. But if, if it ends up being Matthew also, I think there's challenge, right? There's so much packed in there. And, and of course there's tie, right? Well, God's words all tied together. Um, but 20 verses and 20 verses of plenty of plenty of material that, of which really needs some explanation. So I'll do my best here in our remaining amount of time that we have in this Bible study to get into it. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but of course, there, there could be more discussed. Um, so Matthew chapter 18. Let's just go ahead and yeah, let's, I'm going to read all 20 verses and then we'll go through and kind of take a little bit more piece of time. Matthew 18 verse 1 through 20. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this, little ch- like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell his, him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done by them, done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Here ends our gospel reading for Sunday, September 6th. Whew, right? <laughs> quite a bit packed in there. And, oh my, some of the, the language there is rather strong. Uh, I was talking with one of our staff members about, you know, we want to find new ways, especially during the restrictions and challenges of, of today, to share God's word, with, especially with our children. Um, and, wow, this is a passage that, you know, maybe you have to have to work around some things to be able to explain it to children um, because some of this language is just rather difficult, right? And even as adults, we struggle with some of these concepts or some of the words that are, are spoken. So let's get into this. Matthew chapter 18. Context-wise, uh, or considering our context, we back up a little bit in the Gospel of Matthew and you have the transfiguration. Um, and then you have the fact that Jesus himself foretells his own death and resurrection to which the people still do not get it, um, still don't understand what's really going to happen or what's going on. 
Then he has a, a discourse about the temple tax as well um, and giving, and then you can get a whole conversation about um, giving to the church and whatnot. But that's not where we're going today. We have plenty to go off of. Um, and we look at Matthew 18, and really I'm just going to say it from the start because um, if you didn't hear it, I want you to hear it now. And then as we go through and, and get more into each, each portion of this, but we see through this, this account of Scripture um, the seriousness of sin, the value of the believer to Jesus, and also the nature of faith. And by that I mean the dependency, but also the, the, fa- the reality of um, faith battles sin. Um, that, or in our faith life, we, we battle sin daily. So seriousness of sin, value of believer, and the nature of faith. Those are three themes that I believe after studying and reading it, like really run through all of these. So Matthew 18, verse 1 begins talking about disciples say, who's greatest, right? Typical disciples, who's best? Uh, and if you're honest with yourself, it's maybe a question you've asked sometime in your life amongst others. Who's best? Who's best, right? Am I best? Are you best? Who's best? Well, they're saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And it's just amazing the way Jesus teaches, right? Um, so Jesus, he doesn't answer the question right, right, right away. If you look at verse 2, what does he do first? They say, who's the greatest? What's he do? He calls a child and puts the child in the middle of them. Just stands a child right in the middle of them. We don't know the age. We just know it's a child. It's, I mean, a little kid, likely not a teenager from what most commentators think based on the, the use of the Greek saying it's a little kid, a little child. The point is, is Jesus teaches. They say, who's greatest? Boom. Stands a child in the middle of them. Let them look at that. Let them be, see with their eyes who he's going to describe as the greatest. This child. Now think of a little child. Little child is dependent and reliant on their parents. It's the reality of it. A child needs parents. Right? doesn't matter who you are. You need parents as a child. You need to be taken care of and, and provided for. This, a child is dependent on parents. Um, in a way, you could, I think you could also say, you know, humble, because um, even when kids say the funniest things, right, maybe say something that's arrogant, they likely don't always mean it or understand even what they're saying. But um, humbled in the fact that they're, they're reliant on others. Um, and it really, I think if you consider it, most children are, a lot of times are like, okay, yeah, I need you, mom. I need you, dad. That's an okay thing. Okay thing. Um, also consider the fact this child, the child, being a child does not depend on knowledge, right? When Jesus is going to tell them who's greatest, he's not saying it's all about being the smartest, the brightest, whoever knows the amount of facts, whoever can memorize all of scripture, whoever could answer as many questions, you know, that's not what it's about. It's not given in an age, um, some people use this passage to really talk about the whole concept of of baptism and age of accountability. I don't really think that's where we should get into here in this conversation. Um, but the point is, is who's the greatest is the one who has dependent um, faith, who relies on God. Um, I think it is somewhat worth noting as well that, especially this time, I mean, children were not looked upon very well, right? A lot of times they were kind of more looked down upon because they were so dependent and reliant. So I think, again, Jesus is kind of shattering the disciples um, contextual understanding of things that contextually there, um, a child's not elevated amongst the rest of society. And yet here's Jesus elevating this child saying, look, you know, um, not only does this child have faith, right? But Jesus is saying actually like emulate this child, right? Like be humble, be dependent, be reliant. Don't worry about having all the knowledge. Be like this child. That's an interesting message. And then he goes on, and I mean, he doesn't just place in there. He actually says, unless you turn and become like children. So again, he's not just saying this kid's got faith, has faith in, in him or in her. He says, be like this child. Oof, that kind of puts the, puts the message pretty strong there. Um, so again, just really confronts them with their own misconceptions. So who's the greatest? The one who's like a little child. Then we go on, and I, th- I think here, again, we have another somewhat of a subsection or another, another kind of um, section. It says, whoever receives a child receives me, but whoever causes one of these to believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and for him to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Oof. Again, like I said, some of this word you have to kind of maybe temper um, when you're sharing with a little child because, I mean, the reality is what he says is basically – have the person killed. That's terrible, right? Now, does Jesus just want to kill people and, and drown people? No. 
right? That's completely contrary to who Jesus is, the very nature of God. I think the simplest way, after reading and looking at this, considering many different opinions on this, simplest way to look at this past, this portion of Scripture is this conveys the seriousness of sin. And even on top of that, the seriousness of causing someone else to sin. Now, when I say those words, causing someone else to sin, we got to be careful again, right? There's the difference between um, things happen. We live in a fallen, sinful world. And maybe something we do might lead someone to sin. But that is different from intentionally causing someone to sin, tempting them, saying, yeah, sure, it's no big deal. Just go ahead and do this with me. Sure, don't worry about, like, who cares? Like, it doesn't matter, right? Leading people into temptation. Also, it's different from being negligent of avoiding temptation for others, right? It's like, I don't care what my actions do for, for him, for her. It doesn't matter, right? So maybe you're not intentionally going out to cause them to sin, could you actually maybe do more to try not to cause them to sin, right? Um, and it's, so the seriousness of basically leading someone else into sin um, is it's, it's it's terribly serious. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Again, want to be careful when we read this passage. That I mean, we're not just Jesus isn't trying just to heap on the guilt, and you know. Ultimately, sin is between each person and God. Um, But if we see the theme for this weekend is loving our neighbor, caring for our neighbor, watching out for our neighbor, being the watchman, um, doing everything we can to promote the good, peaceable, um, well-lived life for our neighbor, then we should also do what we can to uh, not cause them to sin. Again, not to burden ourselves as as the ones who are responsible for them. At the end of the day, we can all control ourselves but we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all one faith, one family. So there is there is some respons- responsibility um, to each other. So let's go on. <laughs> Excuse me. Verses 7 through 9, we get into the temptations of sin. And we look at this, right? Um, what are the world for temptations of sin? I think a couple things we can see in this portion of Scripture. One, it's just making it very clear, temptation will happen. Right? I don't think you had to listen or join on this Bible class to know that, right? You probably know that in your own life. Um, But temptation will happen. It's the reality. We cannot escape it. We live in a fallen, sinful world. There is temptation. One thing to note, being tempted is not a sin. It's really cool. Actually, I was just talking about this with our eighth graders um, during a confirmation class we had. It's not a sin to be tempted, right? Jesus was tempted. He didn't sin. Now, it's a sin when you fall into that temptation, but being tempted is not a sin. And I, I always try to make that clear with our, our younger, um, you know, our teenagers, but I think it's cool, important for all of us to know because so many times you almost feel guilty because you're like, there's temptation around you. It's like, well, okay, there's a difference between being tempted and like, man, I'm like wrestling against all this stuff and then like falling into sin and not caring and just doing whatever you want. There's a huge difference. We shouldn't feel burdened that we are tempted. That's the world we live in. Um, and the temptation that exists in this world comes from the world. It comes from the devil. Also, cl- clear to note, it does not come from God. Right? Again, some of this is, is kind of core truths you probably already know, but we remind ourselves. Um, then we get into this whole discourse on if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Commentators go all the, uh, a whole lot of, uh, spend plenty of ink on, on this, this section. Um, and some talk about, is it literal? Is it not? Um, my best understanding in, in reading and in, in the way to, to look at this and explain this is, um, it's not literally suggesting cut your hand off. However, in a way, it is suggesting that if cutting your hand off were, to, were, were the way to stop you from sinning, then do it. But that actually won't stop you from sinning. Cutting your hand off will not stop you from sinning because the sin, as we see in other parts of, of, of Scripture, comes from out of our heart, right? It's not about what co- goes into your body, what defiles you, but what comes out of the heart. And so at the end of the day, cutting your hand, your foot, your eye out, that won't stop sin from happening because it's a matter of the heart, right? 
It's not that looking at something that your eyes just bring the, the temptation and do it. It's just That's the fact that the temptation really came from your heart desiring to look at something or seeing something and then desiring and wanting more. And that caused you to then sin to look at it more or to want to look for or, or what have you. That's not the sin, the, the, tempta- the, the error comes from out of your heart. And so we, praying to God by the power of the Holy Spirit, pray that the Spirit work on our hearts. Cut the evil desires out from our hearts. No, I am not in any way, nor do I believe Scripture advocating to go start cutting things off. And the reality is, is at some point in history, this was it was believed to be that way, especially like in monastic times. There were some people who did... Um, they did some terrible things to their bodies thinking that they could that could make them, for lack of better terms, better Christians. Not the way to go. So, again, we have the seriousness of sin and the seriousness of temptation and how serious we should take it in our lives. <coughs> Excuse me. Then we have the parable of the lost sheep. And personally, one of my favorites, I love it, right? Uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but essentially, I want us to remember and note of here, one of these little ones... One of the Christians, one of the part of the ones who are already part of the flock, right? They're God's people. They're lost, right? Now, of course, we know there are lost people in this world who aren't yet part of the flock, and we want them to be part of the flock. We want them believers too. But in this parable, we have a parable talking about it's one of God's, already a believer, and yet the believer's gone astray. And what does this parable teach us? But that God seeks so much and loves his people so much, he goes after even just the one. And that doesn't mean he doesn't care about the 99. That's not what that means. He cares about them. He's not reckless. He is the good shepherd. But what care and love he has that he will go after that one and he will rejoice when even just one more comes back to him. I think it's a beautiful um, beautiful part of scripture. But I want to spend a little time before we need to conclude our time together in this last section. Probably one of the most famous parts of scripture, but also probably one of the more commonly mis- um, or improperly followed, I should say. And when I say that, I'm sure I've been guilty of that as well at times in my life. But unfortunately, in a world of social media, we see it all too much. Okay, point is, it says, if your brother sins against you, right, go tell his fault between you and him alone. And herein lies the, 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 the issue. If your brother sins against you, yeah, you should talk to him about it. Okay, and it doesn't say it here, but it's it's also clear from other parts of Scripture. All the Scripture is tied together. You do it lovingly. You don't go up to them, hey, buddy, you're being real, and you know, fill in the blank with a bunch of nasty words. That's not what we're supposed to do. But you should go to them, and you should talk to them about it. And you should do so respectfully, lovingly, and you should do it between him, you and him alone. Again, like I said, in a world of social media, this is, I think, a large part of the problem. Right? It's a huge temptation. It's what the devil wants to do, right? Make make things worse by tempting us by the fact that, yeah, I got a problem with someone, I'll air it out on social media. That's not the way to do it. If your brother sins against you, you should go to him. Next step, if he doesn't listen to you, go take one other person. And again, this isn't to be a gossip. This is to love him. Because what, as we've talked about in these other passages, what's, what's the danger of someone who continues in sin? That they fall into wickedness? That they be separated from God? That their soul, their life is, is, their spiritual life is in jeopardy? Yeah. Right? So we don't want someone to continue in unrepentant sin. That's an issue. Unrepentance means you're, you're not forgiven. Once, as soon as you're repentant, you're forgiven. So this, this person you go to is unrepentant. So you take one more with you because you want to care for them. You want to love them. That's the key. Loving the person. They still don't listen. They're still unrepentant. So take a few more with you. Two or three witnesses. He's still unrepentant, still doesn't want him to listen. Tell it to the church, right? And I think this is a key part too. What does that mean? I mean, there might be debates among scholars and commentators, but I don't believe it means you go publicly and just tell it to, you know, literally in a voters meeting or on the church website. But the church are just believers in Christ, so maybe you tell it to a few more. Maybe instead of two or three, it's five or six. Maybe it's to a pastor. I it doesn't really clearly say, but it does say you keep telling it. And if it if you tell it to the church at that point and he's still unrepentant, then the key here is verse 17, end of it. Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. And how did Jesus cheat, treat Gentiles and tax collectors? <laughs> he welcomed them in. He sat with them. He ate with them. He walked with them. He lived with them. He wanted them to be his followers. Right? His own disciples. 
Matthew's tax collector, right? And Zacchaeus sat with him in his own home. So it's not about saying, yeah, you're unrepentant, you're doing sinful things, I hate you, goodbye. No. It's still it's recognizing the sin, seriousness of it, but still being loving and kind to them and still desiring that they repent someday and they come back. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're baiting down their door every day, tell them, hey, you're a sinner, repent, right? Maybe you get to a certain point where you've talked about it enough, whatever point you feel that's you know been, you're just praying for them. But that's powerful too. Let God work on their heart even more just through prayer. He already was working on their heart. He's working through you in those conversations you may have had before, but we keep praying. We just keep praying, and God will work it. Um. So yeah, so there concludes really, and I know it goes on a little bit, but those are kind of the highlights. Of course, we could spend more time in, in this, but really I want to see that I wanted to again draw the connection that in the for the weekend of Sunday, Sunday, September sixth, in all of our the, the readings assigned by the lectionary, we just see the very seriousness of sin and the serious consequences of continuing in our sin. But with that, then the ser- the important role that God has given us to love and care for our neighbors and to share God's word with them, and specifically that means warning them of their wickedness and seeking to protect them as best we can, but by sharing God's word. So before we go, let's just go ahead and conclude with a word of prayer. Again, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time in your word. Lord, you've given us your word, much to consider, much to think about, some to wrestle with, and some to even wrestle with in our own lives. That, Lord, where have we failed you? Where do we need to, where do we need to repent And Lord, where will you continue to use us? Thank you for this wonderful gift. Thank you that you joined us together in this new means that we do, that we use for Bible study. But Lord, may you keep us all in your word each and every day. We pray these things and all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you have a great day.